This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Once again, thank you very much for joining me. I'll keep this introduction brief as we'll get on to the content of this episode very soon. But it is the next instalment of our England Manager series. One I'm really enjoying doing. One where I learn so much. And I must say thank you very much to all the great authors that I've been fortunate enough to speak with. They're the ones that have put in all the hard work, the work into researching our national team managers. Uh, So my thanks to them. But before we find out who is next, I just want to quickly remind you that you can find the show on your social media channels. Just search Three Lions Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube as well. It's all there. Please do spread the word. If you follow England and your friends do, tell them. And if this is your first listen, hello to you. Thank you for joining me. All previous episodes, well, they can be found at threelionspodcast.com or your chosen podcast provider. And there you'll find all the ones on the previous European Championships England have participated in. We've got a World Cup series on the go. Both of those you'll hear from England fans who have travelled the globe in hope of seeing England lift some silverware. There's previews, reviews, there's loads on there. And there's former England manager episodes there. Loads there. And if you like what you hear, please drop me a line via those social media channels. would be great to hear from you. OK, enough from me. Let's crack on. Now, regular listeners will know that in this England Manager series, we've covered Sir Walter Winterbottom, South Ramsey, Don Revy and Ron Greenwood. And fifth in line to the throne, as it were, was Bobby Robson. And he was the first England manager that I remember. And like many others, we'll have like a, a distinct affection for, I think would be a fair thing to say. Mm-hmm. I'd like to welcome to the Three Lions podcast author of the book, Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. Hello to David Hartrick. Hello there. Hello. Thanks for having me on. No, more than welcome. Thanks for uh, taking the time to. So the book, Silver Linings, uh, I've read it. I've got it in front of me. It's I really enjoyed it. Let's start. How, how did it come about? Um, I've, I've always been a huge Bobby Robson fan. I, he was the first England manager I remember. Mexico 86 was sort of my formative uh, football watching experience when I was seven. And then they always say the World Cup closest to your 10th birthday ends up being your favourite. And that was, of course, 1990. So I was hugely imprinted by that England side and by Bobby Robson. And I've I've collected a load of books, autobiographies, magazines, all sorts from that from that era. And I had this great sort of repository of research. And I thought it were finally time to do something with it. And I was 
I, I've read all the Bobby Robson books, you know, and yeah. I, all of them, they don't skip over the England time, but they're covering so much ground that it basically zeroes in on a couple of things, um, which is Mexico 86, the right. abuse after Euro 88, and then a bit of Italia 90. And I wanted to tell the whole story because there's actually quite a bit more to it than that. Um, and it just... As with lots of people, COVID happened, lockdown happened, and I needed something to do. So I thought, right, now is the time. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, as I say, it's a, a great book and, and focuses in on on his time as England manager. And as you've mentioned, there are a couple of things that will cover the, um, I mean, especially the the abuse that he got through the the media, and and it would appear that um, we are of a similar age. And I I remember some of those headlines but but we'll get on to that as sure as the uh as the chat goes on i mean let's let's start at the very beginning uh bobby was born 18th of february 1933 it's well known he sort of came from that northeast area county durham footballing wise he he started his career at fulham which is obviously quite a distance from his home the then manager bill dodgin was uh, in charge of, of fulham then and, and enticed him down um, and he, he scored a fair few goals for Fulham and, and he transferred to West Brom uh, and then went back to Fulham. Um, so he had time playing league football for, for Fulham and West Brom and, and for England was capped 20 times. He scored four times and, and he was part of the 1958 World Cup team, but injured when 1962 came around. Well, have you come across much of his playing time? Yeah, he um, he was a. I think he would admit himself he wasn't the most gifted player, but what he was was he was a tremendous athlete by all accounts, and he was just a, a bit of a. I <laughs> I hate to draw parallels with sort of modern players because the game was so different, but he was a bit of a Gary Neville in that he was yeah. you know consistently a six or seven out of ten every week, um, rarely let anyone down, but. What's what's quite interesting is there's a couple of things from his younger life that stayed with him throughout his career. So he comes from that mining town and it's quite a tight community and it, it really taught him the value of speaking to people and knowing how to deal with people and just being having a great deal of humanity for people of all uh, sort of, you know, people who come from wherever and as a player, that industriousness and that workmanlike quality saw him immediately earmarked for better things by the FA. Because um, even in his time as a player with with Walter Winterbottom, he had him and Don Howe on coaching courses before coaching courses <laughs> sort of existed. Yeah. And you know, Winterbottom trusted him. He was even as a player, he had Bobby Robson going out and scouting his opponents for him because he he trusted his opinion and the FA had him quietly working away on projects and he sort of became almost like a de facto advisor at one point so he was he was sort of groomed for for an international manager's job way back at the start of his career and I think that's one of the reasons why when we get into it why he always felt the weight of the position why he always felt it was sort of literally the most important job in the world yeah i mean it's it's actually quite amazing really when i've looked back over the the previous managers just how much influence 
Walter Winterbottom had I mean, being the first yeah. manager, but on all the subsequent managers. Mm. And he, like Winterbottom, I think it's important. He was a real, he was really ahead of his time on a lot of things. You know, the, the, it was Winterbottom that was trying to get club managers and coaches to understand the value of training and then understand the value of training with the football instead of running up hills, yeah. <laughs> basically, and working on technical aspects of the game. And he was a, a big one for trying to get people to expose themselves to different forms of football because English football and the FA just believed they were leading the world regardless of whether that was actually the case or not. And it wasn't the case. And Winterbottom put in... He put in structures and framework, you know, he he wanted, even when you go back to the concept of something like under 21 football, Walter Winsbottom was desperate to introduce different tiers of English international football. He wanted a B team and he wanted an under 21 side so that he could go and view players so that players had the experience of pulling on an England shirt. And of course, Alf Ramsey comes in and Alf Ramsey has absolutely no interest in anything other than the first team. And you can't, you know, look, he won a World Cup. You can't, you can't knock that. But yeah, Winterbottom was a real trailblazer. That, as often happens with England managers, not it, not in this case we're about to talk about, but as often happens with England managers, it it ended very badly. You know, his his time as England manager was, he, he'd run his race, and he probably should have gone two years previously. In truth, but he had done so much groundwork, and he had laid so many things down that we semi-take for granted now. Yeah, it's untrue. Yeah. Well, his first managerial job, after he'd been a player with Fulham, uh, first managerial job really was with Fulham, although it it didn't end particularly well. He he was thrown in at the deep end as they were quickly relegated. And and reading, I found out that he was sacked when he saw it on uh, an evening standard placard outside Mm. Putney (laughs) Station. Um, He had a three-year contract and and he found out he'd been given the chop like that, which is, I mean, imagine it like that now. Yeah, and, and he was very upset about that. He would have quite happily seen his three years out at Fulham and taken a contract for a lot longer. He was very happy there. His family was very settled in the area. And he was pretty unfairly dumped as well because there was a lot of circumstances around that season that were completely out of his control. And when you talk about modern football, (laughs) when you talk about football being cyclical, it, it, there was a lot of financial issues with Fulham at the time. Right. <laughs> and that's what, what brought about the downfall of that season. And, you know, that's what sort of prompted him to then go abroad for the first time. Is that for the first time? Did he not go to Ipswich then? No, he had a very brief sojourn in management to, I think it was Canada, to, uh, he took a, a team on over there who had, were were relatively newly formed right and he decided to to go for it basically and it all turned out to be a little bit of a con job he didn't get paid while he was over there despite relocating his whole family he stuck at it for a couple of months and then ended up coming back when the situation just became untenable because they in a literal sense you know they had no money but it was the first sign he was willing to uh willing to move to further his career, put it that way. Right. Well, their loss would be Ipswich's gain because the club who had previously employed uh, a certain Alf Ramsey would then employ mm. this future 
England manager. He spent 13 years at Ipswich. No league titles, FA Cup though, and of course the UEFA Cup, along with many top six finishes. Mm. I don't know if top six finishes were were thought of as highly as they are now, but there was certainly a third and a second as well um, Mm. at Ipswich. He really cut his teeth there, I guess. He did a phenomenal job there. I mean, I think in 13 years, I think he signed 14 players total. um, And they ended up, I think, the players they sold in that time, he ended up about a million quid to the good. Um, oh. He he just did an incredible job. And he had this spine of players that he bought through the likes of sort of, you know, Brazil walk and various others that all ended up playing sort of well over like 400 games for Ipswich because he just kept going with them and he trusted them and he kept drawing more and more from them. And he'd supplement them with one player they needed each season or or change something. And he did a phenomenal job because he he took them from a very sort of provincial second division club into not quite the top of English football. But I think you have to understand just quite how dominant Liverpool were um, yes. and how good they were, to be frank. So to finish sort of third and second to them in consecutive seasons before he took the England job was quite phenomenal. And in that time, of course, as well, he he became England B manager. Ron Greenwood reinstated the B team uh, for the first time since Winterbottom's days and and him and Don Howe took over the B team. And he was, there were, there was straight away, there was a feeling that there was a succession plan there for the, for the first time. And yeah, I think I think Ipswich was the perfect club for him at the perfect time because there was a bit of a sense of just leaving him to do what he did best and giving him the time to do it. So it's it's look back at, you know, when you talk to Ipswich fans, and I do know a few and have talked to a few, it really is looked back as the sort of golden era for the club and that the European trophy really was the sort of the, the, the crowning point of their history. You mentioned Don Howe there. I think we ought to to mention him. It, not just his right hand man, but it was it was the start of a, a real long friendship between the pair as well. And uh, he's sitting alongside Bobby on on the front cover of the book, isn't mm. he? Yeah, and I felt that was important because they were a double act at their very best. They were not just you know work colleagues they were they were friends they played together as I said they were both groomed for coaching roles together Howard been a he'd been a so-so manager sort of jumping about from place to place a little bit um but he him and Robson together were a very very good partnership they it, it seems trite to say it but it's one of those partnerships where the each knows what's the other's thinking without actually saying it. And Robson, in all of his books, in all of his interviews, whenever he he meant, you know, whenever Don Howe is mentioned, Robson being Robson, he's no issue with saying, I love the man. You know, I absolutely love the man. And he, he genuinely did. And Howe stuck with him through some pretty dark times and also enjoyed the highs with him um so yeah he was he was a pivotal figure during that time with England but yeah they had history going right back to West Brom that's where they first played together and then they started rooming together on England duty and that's how the the friendship was born I see well it was whilst at Ipswich that Ron Greenwood 
um, would take over from Don Revy as England manager. But when that happened, it was sort of really then as first mentioned that Bobby was maybe in the frame. I know as we, we've said that he's been spoken mm. about in FA circles prior to that, but was that sort of the first time that he was possibly a candidate? No, um, <laughs> Alf Ramsey thought that Bobby Robson was being groomed to take his job. And then right. Don Revy had a, a huge issue because he believed that Robson was, was the one they wanted to take over and not him. Um, and he actually tried to leverage that situation at one point. So he was always there or thereabouts, but Ron Greenwood was the, the first of the two before him. Greenwood came along and actually embraced it and said, well, yeah, let's, let's get this man involved. He knows, he understands the, the system. He understands the framework, took him on as England B coach. And he really became, also became a little bit of a de facto member of the backroom staff. You know, Greenwood spoke to him a lot, used him as a sounding post a lot. Greenwood's time, as I'm sure you know, was was quite up and down. And there was the sort of the famous time he offered his own resignation on the plane, et cetera, and was talked out to it eventually. But there was always the succession plan that it was going to be Bobby Robson next. And there was lots of people that wanted it. You know, Jack Charlton was was very keen for the job. Brian Clough, as we all know, was desperate for the job. But really, there was sort of only one choice for the FA, and that was to finally promote the man they'd sort of semi-been working on since the <laughs> since the 1950s. In sort of true FA style, the, the appointment of him was, what I read, was a little bit disjointed. Apparently, Ipswich announced their new manager before England even announced Bobby Robson. Yeah, well, it was the 1982 World Cup and basically the FA party, when England had been knocked out, the FA party decided they were going to stay and watch some games and, you know, I hate to use the words, but effectively have a little jolly up for a couple of weeks. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the Ipswich couldn't afford to rest on their laurels. They'd known before the tournament that basically what was going to happen was going to happen. So they had moved to bring someone in. So they effectively announced that Bobby Robson had left to take the England job before anyone else. And then the England party basically had to scramble and put together a press conference at a hotel and announce his appointment. Um, And Robson didn't know it was being announced officially either. He was, he was just coming back from the world cup as a, as a pundit and observer himself. So, yeah, all a little bit shambolic, but very FA at the time. Um, but he he took over in 82 at a point where Ron Greenwood was very much the right appointment because Ramsey had taken English football as far as he could. He couldn't find a way to bring the, the style and the flair in. And then Reeve had taken over and it had it, just been... I mean, it had been terrible. It, they, they just... <laughs> The FA and Don Revy were just not a match from start to finish. And he struggled without the environment he'd been able to create at Leeds United. He had far too much time to think. That's the reality for Don Revy. So he kept talking himself into things and out of things. And then he left. Ron Greenwood was very much a, a stable hand. You know, he came in, steadied the ship, didn't do anything miraculous with the side, but he at least got back a tiny bit of belief, 
some form of stability and just you know England had had a decade of being kicked in the tabloids and he had managed to at least restore an ounce of pride but then of course Robson comes in and (laughs) the first thing he does is drop two England captains and that's when he he feels the sort of full glare of the tabloids for the first time. That's right. I was going to say he dropped Kevin Keegan. And what was the reaction of the, you mentioned the tabloids? What, how did they? Uh, it, it wasn't good. The, I think it was, I can't remember which way round it was, but Keegan was a columnist, I think for the mirror. And he just moved in a quite a big scoop to the sun. Um, forgive me if I've got that wrong. It might be the other way round, but he he was a very big figure in English football and his weekly columns, he was not shy of saying what he thought. Um, he found out about being dropped, not from Bobby Robson himself, which is something that, that Robson himself has admitted he got completely wrong. And he was, Keegan was furious, absolutely furious. The other captain, Mick Mills, was, he had been captain at the World Cup and he, he accepted it in good grace. Though he did, he did have a little passing shot at Robson, it would be fair to say. But yeah, Keegan was furious and he, he wrote a column, you know, <laughs> saying he would never wear an England shirt again. And um, he was, he couldn't believe the way he'd been treated and he'd given everything for his country. But the long and short of it was that, it, Robson had been in and around the England camp over the 82 World Cup and he felt that Keegan had been a little bit of a distraction because he was clearly injured but he was desperate to play and he was he was agitating to play um, by Robson's account and he felt it being a bit disruptive and the fact he was now playing in the second tier with Newcastle he just felt that he should no longer be an automatic choice for England basically and he he didn't have the intention of ending his international career but he just wanted to take him out of the squad to because he didn't feel he deserved his place and he he wanted him to rediscover the hunger a little bit to fight to get back in and um yeah <laughs> Keegan didn't take it very well and and never played for England again but you know Keegan was a little bit of a volatile character he could, he could be and the tabloids, obviously, the Sun, I think it was, that Keegan was writing for were were sort of raging about it um, for a few days. But there are other newspapers when you read through the coverage that said, well, yeah, it's it's a brave decision, but it's probably the right one. But, yeah, it was a quite an interesting introduction in, into picking an England squad. Well, that coupled with his first game, which was to Denmark, where they drew 2 all. Apparently the Danes were, were the better team. Very but, much so, yeah. But along with that, he he had the unfortunate or the misfortune of being England manager when hooliganism um was following England by a by a considerable margin. It was to be a uh, to be a real steep learning curve for him. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh... He spent a lot of his eight years in charge of England apologising for the conduct of England fans, it would be fair to say. It really hit its lowest ebb in 1988 at the Euros, but that first game in Denmark, the the, the under-21 international the night before the full international, England fans had been openly racist to their own team. Uh, they'd smashed up at the sort of town centre of Copenhagen. Uh, a load had been arrested. 
the game, it got even worse. There was fighting before, during and after. Uh, right, police called in. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty grim, but it was also pretty pretty standard for the time. I think by the end of the decade, it was clear that England fans were being demonised and that the tabloids knew that reporting on England violence, whether it had actually happened or not, was a surefire way to sell papers. Um, and the, the tide was being turned. But yeah, they, the, the early 80s, they really were quite a grim time. And and it was every game, you know, it didn't matter who you who you played against. It was always a sort of tidal wave of violence. Yeah, it's unfortunate times. I mean, this his first period as as England manager was to try and qualify for the European Championships of 1984 that were held in France. England didn't make it, and I read that when they they lost to was it Denmark? Um, yes, lost by Goldenhill. Yeah, and when yeah. we were we were pretty much out, he was quoted as saying it was his blackest day. And he offered his mm. resignation. The media were already onto him then, but but the FA stood by him. Yeah, I, there's a couple of different levels to that because I think I think they stood by him because they knew what he'd done at Ipswich had taken time and. He was already changing the entire makeup of that squad. I, I forget the exact number, but he'd used a phenomenal amount of players in his sort of 18 months, two years in charge. And he was trying to do something different. So the sort of old guard, you know, the England squad at 1982 World Cup, all the newspapers had christened it Dad's Army right. um, because of the, the amount of players over 30 in there. So... He was trying to bring through younger players. He was trying to change the way they were playing, um, trying to get a little bit more technical. And I think they just saw something in that. But also, and this can't be underestimated, they just didn't want the hassle. They didn't want the hassle of having to find another manager because the pressure to bring Brian Clough in, who was the man they were desperate not to employ, they didn't want Clough in that role in any way, shape or form because... Not only was he sort of volatile and difficult to deal with, he already had a running feud with a couple of people very high up in the FA. And it was just this sort of insatiable desire from the tabloids to push club at, at every opportunity. The home internationals of, of uh, 83, they, the Sun were handing out Clough in, Robson out badges, you know, which is just crazy when you think about it. The FA just didn't, want that situation they didn't want the hassle so it was we'll stick with Robson we believe in what he's trying to do anyway so but he did offer his resignation that was the first time he offered his resignation um, when they failed to qualify for Euro 84 and he really did take it hard because he'd got the job he'd sort of been lined up for his entire life the job he believed was the most important in football in the world and he'd sort of failed what he considered failed at the first hurdle. But I think maybe without that failure, he wouldn't have gone on to what he did go on to. Yeah, true. All the the media, the back pages of the of the tabloids then, unfortunately, seemed to creep into the terraces. Um, there was a particular game, uh, by all accounts, a friendly against the USSR, where yeah. a lot of the supporters there were were heard to be calling for Robson out 
And by all accounts, he was even spat at, which is horrendous. Yeah, he, he they lost 3-0 on a very sunny afternoon, Saturday afternoon at Wembley, and they played terribly. And they were about to go on a tour to South America, and he'd had to pick a slightly weird squad because <laughs> it seems remarkable, but back then... So the bigger clubs' pre-season tours or, or wishes around pre-season took precedent over anything England-wise. Um, so he he was without a couple of players. I've watched that USSR game a couple of times, and you can quite hear clearly hear the chants. You can quite hearly clearly hear some pretty nasty racist stuff towards a couple of England players. And as he walks down the tunnel at half time, he gets in a lot of abuse. And at full time, the booing is it, it, like all consuming. He's, there's beer being thrown. He's being spat at. But they go to South America on a tidal wave of headlines saying that, you know, he's not good enough. He should go. And they beat Brazil 2-0 in their own backyard. And it's a result that because of the aura around Brazil in 1984, and bear in mind, you've just had the golden generation of 82 that never won the World Cup. But I, I mean, what an amazing, incredible Brazil side that was. That that basically buys him enough goodwill to keep him going to 1986. Um, but also you have a pretty turbulent 1985 domestically, which again means the FA just really wouldn't want the hassle of having to to deal with a new England manager either way anyway. So, Yeah, I mean, with the, obviously the Brazil game, we're talking John Barnes's goal, but yeah. moving on to 85, one thing I, I did pick up on, was he hindered by the fact English clubs were were banned from Europe. Obviously, it was the, the time of Liverpool and High Soul. And the players that he could pick for, the players that he could pick from, weren't having this European experience. Yeah, very much so. Um, I, I think it's worth saying 1985 really is the nadir of English football, in my opinion. You've, you've got the High Soul disaster, the Bradford fire, 14-year-old Birmingham fan died at a game against Leeds when a wall was pushed onto him. You had several other on-pitch incidents, you know, fans coming onto the pitch and confronting players. You had the Luton Millwall riot. It really couldn't have got much worse. And 1985 was was the start of trying to sort things out. It would get a little bit worse before it would get better. But what it was the start of is eliminating things like the National Front openly, um, effectively recruiting at football games and recruiting football hooliganisms and funding trips to watch England abroad and the like. That's uh, to be eliminated. And the European ban was kind of inevitable because our own government's opinion of football was that it was essentially I I think if the Conservative government could have shut football down at that point I genuinely think they would have done there was a huge disconnect between the government and and football fans who believed that every football fan was what they read they were on the front page of the Sun and the Mirror and the European ban was inevitable was needed But Robson was 
you know, he was very encouraging to the players that took the plunge and decided to move abroad. He stayed in touch with them all the time. He was constantly reassuring them that it wasn't going to affect their chances of playing for England, you know, because there are other nations in Europe like Germany, who, if you didn't play in their league, you wouldn't play in the national side. And he never adopted that view. And he was acutely aware of what he felt was a, a, a sort of gap in their knowledge. And he became, he put a lot more stock in friendlies and, put a lot more weight and a lot more importance on certain friendlies because he was constantly trying to expose players to different types of football and different ways of playing football now that the European avenue was shut off to them. So yeah, it it's, he had to, there was nothing he could do about it and it was a hindrance, but he probably dealt with it in the only way he could really. Yeah. Well, 1985 fortunately passed 1986 came around and England had qualified for the Mexico World Cup. And again, reading in the book, I, I couldn't believe that that he took some criticism from Alf Ramsey ahead of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, Alf Ramsey had a real issue with Bobby Robson. And I, I think it goes back to, I mean, it, this is pure conjecture on my part, but I think it goes back to, I think Alf Ramsey felt that Bobby Robson was potentially being lined up to replace him at the end. Alf Ramsey was quite a belligerent bloke. You know, when he knew he was going to be sacked, he demanded uh, a new contract from the FA at double the money he was on. He had a real issue with Bobby Robson and Robson was never too sure why, because at one point, you know, Robson idolised Ramsey. But yeah, through through newspapers and also um, through some of Robson's contacts, you know, uh, Ramsey had had effectively slagged him off, um, and it was it was a, it was tough for Robson to take. You know, it was one of effectively one of his heroes, yeah, <laughs> um, having a go at him, and um, you know, Ramsey was was quite unrepentant. But Robson didn't hold a grudge. There's the the story of um, they they were at a PFA do and they used to live near each other robson still had his home in ipswich and uh bobby robson said oh, i'll drive you home out so you don't have to get on the train and <laughs> ramsey outright refused and oh. said no i'm not going in a car with you um so yeah it was it was a difficult relationship that but only one way and it did it did hurt robson but he was at a point then where I, he was using criticism as fuel i think it would be fair to say because it was so dark um, English football at that point. And he, they were getting attacked for things that were completely out of his control. So he did try to create a little siege mentality. If he could, he didn't go full Mourinho, but he did try to create a little bit of a siege mentality. And, you know, they went into that world cup in pretty, in pretty good fettle all in, you know, they, they were, maybe not hopeful of winning it all, but they felt they had a good chance of going a long way. It didn't start particularly well. Um, and as we all know how it sort of panned out and, and how it ended, I don't ever, I don't ever remember seeing any, clearly he would have been frustrated at the way that the Argentina game ended, but I don't ever remember him being really sort of aggravated on, on camera or, or anything in the way that um, it ended? 
he he gave a he gave a press conference that was filmed the day after the game and you know quite quite famously he calls him a cheat and says you know he cheated mm. um and he is clearly he's clearly agitated but yeah he he didn't bear a grudge he wasn't he wasn't one to once he'd said his piece once he'd done his bit he was yeah pretty much ready to to move on you know and and I think that sense of injustice as to how we went out of that World Cup, the the narrative arc of that World Cup was they started very badly because of of they got uh, they got their planning and preparation wrong, but then they got themselves back right. Terry, <laughs> I talk about it in the book, but Terry Fennick claims he was the one that yes. stood up in a team meeting. I I think that is pretty much in Terry Fennick's head from reading other accounts of that. And also Robson by all accounts was the master at getting players to say things he wanted them to say without them knowing he was, he was doing it the way they went out of that world cup after playing pretty well against a very decent Argentina side, but having a couple of brilliant games before that it did, buy him a lot of time it bought him a lot of respect and that sense of injustice basically gave the newspapers at the time a different enemy yes. <laughs> someone else to someone else to focus on and that i wouldn't say bought him time because he was never under danger anyway but yeah it, it put the spotlight somewhere else and he said what he said at that press conference but then he just moved on and just started planning again for for ninety, for the you know qualifying for the Euros in nineteen eighty eight, but he was good at that. You know, it was always about the next task. He yeah. never focused too long on the one thing. There was always something else you should be planning for. Well, it seemed like that qualification period and nineteen eighty seven. He was he was given a, a fair crack of the whip because of the results on the pitch. There was a win against Spain. There was yeah. a draw against Brazil. There was a win against Yugoslavia, which secured qualification to 88 mm. uh, and an 88 is pretty much my as I've said before on previous podcasts my first real proper memories of of England at a, uh, an international tournament and it just it just nosedived that particular tournament didn't it in Germany yeah I, I think Robson would be the first to admit himself that he got there was there was things he got wrong I think you you look at the the squad he took and uh, his a lot of his key men were were struggling. You know, he didn't realise Gary Lineker was ill at the time. Beardsley and Barnes had been such an important part of that rise in 1987. You know, that win over Yugoslavia, when you read back through various autobiographies, and Robson himself said it was their best ever England performance. You know, Terry Butcher says it was his best ever game, you know, favourite ever game. They came into Euro 88 and like Barnes and Beardsley had just come off the most epic season with Liverpool and I I think I can't remember which one but one of them had only missed about 33 minutes of football across all the competitions Liverpool played in Um, the other had only been subbed off I think three times over the season and they they were shattered you know that's the long and short of it they were shattered Chris Waddle had had a hernia which his (laughs) his recovery period had been appalling (laughs) basically Mm. he he'd you know, spent quite a bit of time in the pub and a lot of time not taking it particularly seriously. Uh, he wasn't fit. And there, there were other factors, you know, losing Terry Butcher, who was such a, a massive, massive 
personality in the squad and had a huge role in the side. He broke his leg playing for Rangers. They thought he was going to be back in good time, but they realised they'd misdiagnosed the first break and he had another fracture that needed treating so he couldn't play. It was just a very, very difficult time, really. And you had players like Glenn Hoddle who were not a very good fit for what Robson was trying to do with the England team at that point and just all went horrifically wrong, um, horrifically wrong. And you you couple that with what the England fans did in Germany, which was basically run riot for 10 days, <laughs> destroying cities, trains, restaurants, pubs, buses, everything else as they went. Um, it was just a, another real low ebb. For England and the newspapers didn't hold up. Um, not only did they attack Robson on the football side, but but they went personal as well. They they started to dig yeah. up on a maybe a an extramarital affair that Robson mm. said. Although I'm I'm guessing that the papers elaborated on the truth quite a bit just to yeah get the boot they, in they, a little bit more. It got really personal. There was a infamous friendly in, in Saudi Arabia where nobody particularly wanted to go. Every club manager who could had withdrawn their players. Brian Clough had vocally withdrawn his players and said there was nothing wrong with them. He just didn't want them to go. The friendly had been called because the FA had been offered an amount of money that they couldn't turn down. It was a horrible game in terrible conditions on an awful pitch. England drew 1-1 and the abuse after that game was something else reading back through it. Um, you know, the, <laughs> with the Daily Star running a four-page special, Robson Out special, the Mirror getting comedians to write pages of Bobby Robson jokes um, and having various of the great good in football saying he had to go all of them pushing a sort of pro Brian Clough agenda, believing he was the man that should sort it out. And the stuff around the affair came out afterwards because they were digging through and they found, you know, Bobby Robson was a human being and he was flawed. And at no point in the book do we sort of look at him as anything other than a human being. It's not a hagiography, but they took the the sort of brief extramarital affair and they turned it into something that it wasn't, as you can imagine. And then they dug up another story from a woman that was basically a complete fabrication, that it, he'd had another affair with this woman, wife of a farmer, that they would then dig up again just before they went away in 1990. Um, and again, these are just sort of, fabrications they're just lies and it the long and short of it was it all came from the same place they couldn't get him the yeah. the papers at the time sort of the the tabloid circulation war they prided themselves on making and breaking careers you know they they <laughs> they could get rid of politicians when they wanted to they could if a celebrity or a star annoyed them they would suddenly become embroiled in one scandal or another but they couldn't get Robson because the FA dug their heels in. Again, the candidate, the only other realistic candidate was Howard Kendall, who didn't want the job and who had publicly stated he didn't want the job. Ron Atkinson, who the FA didn't particularly want in any way, shape or form. And Brian Clough, who they were frightened to death of at that point. And 
it really was, it, it was not a case of, again, Robson had offered his resignation after 88, but it, it wasn't so much as a, a sort of, it, it wasn't a vote of confidence as a, please just carry on because we really don't want the hassle of sorting everything out. And, you know, true to his word, he, he kept going and he just ploughed through regardless. But it was, it was an incredibly tough time. Yeah. You know, you imagine the toll it took on his, his family and he'd go to English grounds to watch games and he was being chanted at and shouted at. Um, it was very, very difficult for him to live a life during that period. Horrible situation to be in. Wouldn't wish that on, on anyone. But but on the, uh, on the pitch going towards 1990, uh, wins against Brazil and, and Czechoslovakia put the team in a good place and sort of Czechoslovakia came, that game came with it. A certain Paul Gascoigne who mm. would have a, a great rapport with Bobby. Yeah. Well, they, the two warm up games for Italia 90, there was, it, he was incredibly frustrated because the FA only organized a couple of friendlies in 1990 to give him a chance to look at people. He, he wanted, the first international break, they played no games. So all he could do was just have a bit of a get-together. And he, I think he took 35 players and just had a couple of days with them, but no actual games. The first friendly was an audition for David Platt more than anything. And he plus, passed with flying colours. Gaza had been around the England squad and he'd had a couple of good games. He did a, in, in the infamous Terry Butcher blood game. Gaza came on and actually played a very disciplined role in midfield that day and did what he was told. But one of the reasons he did what he's told, because his, his, the Albania game, which a lot of people remember where he comes on a sub with, with 25 minutes to go and Robson tells him he wants to play him on, on the right and midfield and just shore it up. And the first thing he does is jog over to the left hand <laughs> side. Then he plays as a striker as a bit. And then he plays as a central midfielder for a bit. It was, He'd had a Robson loved him straight away, and he was well aware of what the talent was, but he just didn't know if he could trust him. You know, in in the glare of a World Cup and all it brings, he wanted to see if he could go out with a tactical role and do it. And that Czechoslovakia game, he was Gaza was incredible. You know, he was absolutely run the game from midfield and just gave Robson absolutely no. <laughs> no chance that he couldn't take him. The thing is, the press had been on Gaza since the start of the year. He was he was the big young thing in English football, and he'd broke his his arm earlier in the year, and he'd had a, a spell out. Um, match of the day were basically just following him around the country when they were picking their featured game. So there was this real groundswell anyway, and I think Robson would have took him regardless. But I think the difference with the Czechoslovakia game is that what is what convinced him to start him and to trust him a bit more. Yeah. Well, just before the team went to Italy, it was May time, and the FA it had come to contract talks time, and it was then that the the FA decided that there'll be a change after the World Cup, regardless of of whatever would happen um, because it, it it coincided with PSV Eindhoven of, of the Netherlands approaching Robson about being their manager to which he accepted. And from what I can gather, everyone tried to keep it a little bit quiet and away from the press and away from the, 
the team uh, didn't want to distract them before the World Cup came around. And then when it did come out, he was branded by the by the tabloids as a traitor. Yeah, so they'd <laughs> spent eight years telling him he should go, and then when he was going, they said he was a traitor. It was unbelievable. unbelievable. <laughs> and he, how that had come about is they PSV had made their sort of interest known, and he had um, decided that he wanted the job. But only if that was he was not going to be, have his contract renewed by England. He had a, actually had a contract till 1992, but there was an agreement after the World Cup that they would essentially look at his contract again. Right, and he had talks with them, and they made it very, very clear that they wanted a change. They'd had enough of the newspaper coverage. That's that genuinely. That's the long and the short of it. Right, they'd they'd had enough of the constant headlines, and. Robson said, okay, that's absolutely fair enough. I'd love to continue. Um, and he genuinely did want to continue, but he went and sorted himself out with the Eindhoven job. And I think when you look back at that time, the coverage he'd had, there was no way he could go and get another job in English football straight away because I think the pressure and the attention would have just been absolutely ridiculous. And it wasn't fair to put that on any club, really. So... He he agreed to do the, the PSV job. Everybody had decided to keep it quiet. PSV were, had honoured it there and they said they wouldn't announce anything or even talk about it till after the World Cup. But it leaked out via the FA themselves. There's a lot of debate as to who it was, but there was a couple who had a little bit of a grudge, it would be fair to say, towards Robson. And the papers ran it and it, it led to a press conference literally... As he was, uh, as the England team were boarding the flight, Robson gave a press conference just before they went to Italia 90, where he had to discuss that. He had to discuss the implications of one newspaper who were effectively saying he had taken a bribe to go to PSV. And also the, the weekend before, the fabricated affair that the husband um, of the woman involved had suddenly decided to come forward and tell his side. And the allegedly the woman involved was writing uh, a book all about her time with Bobby Robson. You'll be unsurprised to know that that book never saw the light of day uh, and doesn't exist in any form. So he gave a press conference and he did, he did lose it, you know, quite, quite rightly. He'd reached the end of his tether and he accused them of lying. Graham Kelly reads a prepared statement and Robson stands up. There's just a real feeling of aggression throughout and he just had enough. And they'd done everything they could to keep the PSV job quiet and I believe he was going to tell the players when they got to Italy. So it wasn't like he was going to try and keep it quiet for the whole of the World Cup. Right. But they just left in like sort of tellingly farcical circumstances. And the players then get accused. When they get to Italy, they have a couple of weeks and a couple of friendlies, and then they obviously move up to their proper training base. The wives and girlfriends all go home because Robson had let them come out for the first week. And then the hostess story emerges where the, this, this hostess is allegedly sacked from the hotel for dancing and looking after the England players. And no one is ever named. And the story itself is sort of a masterclass in saying everything without saying anything. 
And the next day, the, the headline goes up. And the next day, the basically that all the players have to get these calls from their wives and girlfriends, you know, where they're being accused of all sorts. And they finally had a little bit of a taste of the, the pressure that Robson was under because he was very good at shielding them from it. He was very good at taking it all across his own back. And that is when they started refusing to speak to the written press and they created their own little siege and that, you know, Robson became very much part of that. And ultimately that helped them through the tournament. I was going to say, was, was that the, the players getting through that tournament? Because obviously it started with a, with a 1-1 draw against Ireland. It was the 0-0 mm. against Holland. And then we scraped through with a 1-0 victory over Egypt to then take us through the, to the uh, the knockouts. There was a, there was, I think there was, there's a flip round. When you read through the coverage, the 1-1 against Ireland is treated as if England have just lost 8-0. I mean, the, the outrage and the despair is just ridiculous. It's like knee-jerk doesn't even begin to cover it. But then the 0-0 against Holland, bear in mind this is the, the Dutch side that took them apart in 1988 and properly took them apart. There is a real turn and I think the written press have realised, you know, because a lot of this stuff isn't being written by sports writers, you have to understand. Right. A lot of this stuff is front pages, not back pages. So the sports writers then realize they've got to be slightly more realistic with a lot of the stuff that's being said because they you know they're in a very real way they're being denied access and there's a little bit of sort of chickens coming home to roost about it and England played really well in that nil nil and the final game then they just had to get through it you know it didn't it, it was genuinely one where there was sort of near universal agreement that the performance didn't particularly matter they just had to win and they found a way to win. And it was as they got into the knockouts that it it was the nature of how they won those games really that started to endear people to the team again and to Robson again, because, you know, last minute winners, three, two wins over, you know, one of the most popular teams in the tournament. And then that magnificent semi-final where they, like everybody gave it, every last drop of what they had really, you know, let him go on a high and let people actually understand and realise the good work that had actually gone into getting England to that point. That's right. So the Germany game would end on penalties, as we all know, but there was, there was one more there where they played Italy in the third, fourth place game. The team would then come back to Luton and parade through the, uh, the streets of Luton, but, but Bobby wasn't there to sort of no. receive that adulation, really. No, he he was still working for the BBC. Um, he was he was going to the World Cup final, and he, like in a couple of interviews and speaking to a couple of people, in sort of very typical Bobby Robson fashion, there was no sort of resentment that he didn't get to lap that up. He was just so glad that others did. And Gary Lineker wasn't there either. Gary Lineker was with him because they, right. they stayed to collect the um, fair play award um, at the actual final. But there was, you know, the daily mirror printed load of headlines saying, you know, thank you for everything to the England team. He was given almost overnight a complete revision. Um, and he was suddenly leaving as a hero. It was quite, remarkable 
the the three sixty. The it was the newspapers had taken the te- the temperature of the general public, and they knew they couldn't carry on <laughs> as they had been. And the the thing about them coming home to Luton is, if you read papers at the time, they sort of put the crowd conservatively at like maybe quarter of a million. And then a day later, it's half a million. And then you see, like, if you speak to anyone who was there or you, you people looking back at it or you look at the photos and it's clear that, I mean, I don't know what the number was, but it was an, it was just an incredible amount of people and an incredible outpouring of, of love really for this team. And yeah, it was as a writer, it was a bit of a joy really because you have almost a complete narrative arc of somebody coming in in difficult circumstances struggling a huge injustice in 1986 a, a real failure in 1988 and yet somehow leaving as this hero you know it, it was an absolute gift in that sense absolutely in in 8 years in charge of the national team he played 95 147, drew 30 uh, and lost 18. And we mentioned that PSV was to be his next destination. And and he stayed in Europe for a little while where just to run through some of his achievements there, whilst he was at PSV, he won two league titles. Um, he went on to Sporting Lisbon in Portugal where... Although, I mean, he was sacked when they were top of the league, but the main thing I think that he took from being at Sporting was he met Jose Mourinho, who at the time acted as mm. his interpreter and sort of followed him on, on his journey. And, and he would later say what how much of an influence Bobby was on him because he then took him to Porto in, in Portugal where they won two league titles. There was a Portuguese Cup as well and then he moved to Spain where he famously became manager of Barcelona now something we we didn't really mention earlier on but he'd actually been maybe approached by Barcelona back in yeah. the his early time as England yeah um he he got approached a couple of times uh, by Barcelona he was they, he's he's a very holistic manager, you know, and he was he wanted to play football the right way and do things the right way. And Barcelona were always incredibly keen. And by the time they finally got their man, you know, Robson had had he'd worked with Romario. Um, he you know bought over Ronaldo. He had become this everywhere he'd been he'd been a he'd been a success and b the players had just absolutely adored him and Jose Mourinho always says that like Robson taught him the value of having a different approach for different different players and various other things and he still calls him boss Pep Guardiola worked under him at Barcelona and he said he taught him humanity basically you know not not being robotic and there are other players across that time across Europe who've gone on to things who all are quite open in the debt that they owe Robson. And his time at Barcelona was quite difficult because, at, <laughs> as is typical at Barcelona, there was an ownership struggle going on and an election. And when you actually 
dig into what he did there it was quite remarkable really he they they went through a real low and he came back and ended up getting them into a real position where they could go on he basically platformed them for for really getting themselves together in the early noughties, which then led, you know, 10 years later to the bringing Guardiola in and, and going on from there. And he was, you know, he was sacked fairly unceremoniously as manager and moved into a technical director role. And it was, there was a real tug of war in the club because a lot of people were just desperate for him to stay because they believed in what he was doing. But the other side to all of this, the, the thing that's running concurrently is he'd already battled cancer once at this point you know he his his health had had suffered and he had a plate in the top of his mouth where the cancer had been removed and the strength of character to just keep going the thing about Robson it was always about the work you know it's always about the work the next project the next job and he just kept moving forward throughout and he had a lot of these setbacks you know I think he would like to have been Barcelona manager for three or four years and really build something but again circumstances outside of his control dictated that couldn't happen but yeah what a what a legacy he left ultimately I think he by all accounts really enjoyed his his time abroad um probably away from the the English press uh, and that side of things and, and he had another stint at, at PSV before I think the lure of maybe the Premier League and and coming back home finally grabbed him when he mm. came back to Newcastle United in September of 1999, where really I, I wasn't aware just how successful he was there, despite yeah. not picking up any silverware, regularly taking them to European football, um, UEFA Cup semi-finals. Mm. And it- he had real unfinished business there because going right back to his days when he was a player, one of the, one of the, he ended up at Fulham because Fulham were the club who made a personal effort to sign him. He had a load of offers on the table and he wanted to play for Newcastle United, but the offer was just, it wasn't derisory, but it just wasn't the right offer at the time. And it was almost like he spent his entire career with a, 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 an itch he needed to scratch. And when he dropped Kevin Keegan, he went to watch Keegan later that season because, as I said, he had no intention of shutting the door on Keegan. It was Keegan that shut that door. And he was spat at by the Newcastle fans. Um, and it was a little bit of an aggressive situation, to say the least. And he felt he had a point to prove. You know, he was always very proud of his history in the area and his, his upbringing. And I think. I genuinely think it's the probably at the time the only job that would have got him back to England, and yeah, he did incredibly well there. Again, it's an it's it's one of those jobs where I think we get we get slightly trapped in football into thinking that only that only teams that have won something have had a successful season. Yeah, but you know, in particularly in modern football, <laughs> there's this weird perception from a certain generation of fans that. Only if you win the Premier League title and we or win the Champions League, that's the only thing that qualifies as a success that season. And I just I can't get on board with that because context are always so different. And you know the FA Cup still means something to me. The League Cup as a Brighton fan, you know, if we won a League Cup, I would be uh, beside myself. <laughs> so 
I, I think you have to go back and look in context. And he, he went in there at a, a difficult time. He got the squad right. And again, he did what he does. He got a group of players who would run through brick walls for him. And he supplemented it with a little bit of flair and a, a lot of tactical nows. And yeah, he, he may not have hit the sort of Keegan-esque heights of, of being in a two-horse race for the title, but he turned them into a competent, successful, well-run club that everybody was extremely happy and proud to play for. And that's not to be underestimated either. Yeah. Well, away from the football or away from the, the sidelines of, of a football pitch, he he starred in some adverts. He was in the uh, a Yellow Pages <laughs> advert with Graham Taylor, Terry Venables, yeah. and some will remember the, the Carlsberg's best pub team advert. Um, and then just going back a little bit, he was actually awarded the CBE in 1991 and then knighted mm-hmm. in 2002, both of those for services to football. Um, and as you've mentioned, his, his illness began to encroach on his life, shall we say, 2006 mm. as the lung cancer and, and there was a, a tumour on the brain. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, his life was taken on the on the 31st of July 2009, aged 76. And, yeah, it, it was such a loss. Yeah, it was, it was a huge loss. I think he was... He he was not just one of, uh, I mean, like it's very subjective to say he's England's best manager when Alf Ramsey won a World Cup, but mm. he's definitely in the conversation for, for on a lot of levels, and his context was very different to other England managers. And the, the, you know, it was the way he approached his life. He was just never mind football or being a manager he was just one of the best gentlemen this country has produced and you know you look at how he approached his illness when he got diagnosed I I think it was for the second or third time and he was speaking to people at the hospital and they needed a million quid to to build a, a new ward to help with some cancer treatment and he had it raised in I think it was about four months and he set up the Bobby Robson Foundation which is you know, an incredibly successful vehicle for fundraising and cancer treatment now. And it's a cause that's very dear to my own heart. You know, we, I did a book through uh, my own publishing company with, with my friend Dan story, and we managed to raise them 36 grand. And we, you know, it's a real, it's a real legacy. It's not, You think about all the things we've talked about and all the things he's gone through, the dark days, the press coverage, and he is still one of the faces on the Mount Rushmore of English football. You know, probably the first one you put on there. And it, it is just just testament to, I think more than anything else, to the fact that he was more human than other managers. You know, I, I, I think... Jose Mourinho and Pep Guardiola, and even if you look at some of the England managers we've had, Sven and and even Glenn Hoddle, they occupy a little bit of a different space. Whereas as Bobby Robson always felt like one of us somehow. Yeah. <laughs> he always, you know, there are so many stories of him taking the time to stop and talk to people, to to you know, people approaching him in a in a pub 
just to have a very quick chat with him. You know, these are the days before mobile phones, so you couldn't get a picture, etc. But in the end, it would be them saying, I've, I've got to go now, Bobby, because <laughs> you know, he was just so happy talking football and, and talking to people. And yeah, I, I just think he's, his humanity constantly shines through more than anything else. Love that analogy of being on the uh, the Mount Rushmore mountain. I'm I'm just thinking of who else would go alongside him, but that's clearly a a story for another day. David, thank you very much for uh, for for giving us your time. The book Silver Linings was published through Pitch Publishing, and it's uh, I think you can grab it through their website and obviously through any good bookshop. I can yeah, highly all recommend the usuals. It. Yeah, I mean, are you are you working on anything else? Yeah, I, I'm doing a follow-up on the Graham Taylor years, but I, I I have no idea how or when that will come out because there's a hell of a lot of research going into it. There, there's That's a book where there's very much two sides to every story and it's trying to actually get to the truth of quite a lot of things uh, on that one. So at some point that will come out, um, but God knows when. Well, keep, keep us in the loop. It'd be, uh, be great to have a chat about that one. Definitely, definitely. Thank you very much for your time. No problem, enjoyed it. Thanks very much. My many thanks go to David Hartrick there. His book is called Silver Linings, Bobby Robson's England. And the book is published through Pitch Publishing and it's available in all good book outlets. And you can follow David on Twitter at David Hartrick. Thanks again for listening. As I said at the beginning of the show, well, it's on all the socials. Go give it a find, a like, a follow, all that sort of thing. Say hello. Great to hear from you. I'll be back with you very soon with some more England content. And I'm already putting in the hard yards for the next in line for this England Manager Series. So until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.